Have you ever really listened to the promises of those who are running for various political offices? They often make incredibly grand and impossible promises in order to get your vote. Even they know they can't come through with the promises that they are making. And so you wonder, what really is the alternative? Well, the alternative is they can make vague promises, or they make no promises at all, but that probably won't get your vote. And the amazing thing is that we often buy into it. We often bite the, the bait that they offer. And we, we, we believe that these promises that they make are going to be fulfilled, that they're going to be able to do it. There is something inside of us that knows that things are not right. There is something wrong with the world, and we so badly want to be saved, so badly that we will even believe a lie. The reality is that there is only one government that can save us. There is only one whose promises are absolutely true, and we can bank on them as being true. Instead of listening to the false promises of the world, we need to listen to the true promises of the God who can actually save us. This passage should bring great comfort to our hearts because it tells us how God is working to build and establish his true and greater kingdom. This passage should bring us comfort, should bring us peace, should bring us great joy if you belong to God's kingdom because in his kingdom is everything we need. And so even at times like this, we can have peace, we can have comfort, we can have joy if you are connected to the kingdom of God. Please follow along as I read Isaiah 32. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the crafty, the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you woman who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent woman. For the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you woman who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare, and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, 
for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palaces forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower tower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. You should find great comfort in the fact that God is going to establish his kingdom through providing you with a perfect ruler. And we see this in the first eight verses of this chapter. And we begin with God making an announcement that a king is coming in verse 1. We read, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will reign in justice. You know, if you were to look through the Bible, you would find that one consistent theme is that there is no one who can deliver anybody. There is no true king. There is no true government. We, we can't deliver ourselves. We looked at God's judgment concerning the surrounding nations in chapters 13 through 23. And why was God going to bring judgment on every nation that surrounded God's people? Because their leaders could not lead. No one could lead them to salvation. We recently, in the beginning of Isaiah, in chapter 7, looked at Ahaz, the wicked king. He had no ability to lead his people to salvation. He brought them into God's judgment. He was as wicked as they come. And even right now, there's King Hezekiah. He is the king. As we read in chapter 32 of Isaiah, he is the present king of Israel, of God's people. And he is actually a pretty good king, isn't he? But even he can't lead his people to salvation. Even he is not able to deliver God's people. And that is the message of the Bible. No human leader can lead us to salvation. And here, what we see in this passage is God's answer to the problem. His solution is a king, but not just any king. This is the perfect king. And with him comes the perfect government. God says he will save and he will raise up a savior. And that salvation will come through his kingdom that he will bring. So the question for us is, what would this saving kingdom look like? What would it look like for someone to bring the perfect kingdom? What would be the essentials of this king? And we see that right here. He would reign in righteousness. He would have a righteous character about him. And so what does it mean to reign in righteousness? Well, the answer is, it means to reflect the character of God. The perfect character of God. And this one who reigns would not only be the Messiah, according to chapters 11, verses 1 through 9, but he would also be the Lord God himself. 
in chapters 33, verse 22. And we know that this king has actually already come, hasn't he? Jesus perfectly embodies this righteous, God-reflecting king. We see bits and pieces of this king, don't we, in representatives throughout the Bible. We see David, we see Moses, we see different various individuals who represented this king and his kingdom to his people. Not perfectly, they were flawed, but in different ways they reflected this king. And in fact, all who came before this perfect king and after have only led as well as they appointed to this king as savior and God. They have only led as well as they pointed to this king as the one who can save. That is really the distinguishing factor of a good leader. We also know that this king is coming again, and we look forward to his return, don't we? When he comes, he will come with the fullness of his kingdom, and we will see the fullness of his righteous character and enjoy the fullness of his character. Revelation 19.16 describes the returning of this king. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be under this perfect king? What would the conditions be like? What would it be like for you to be under this king and his government? And verse 2 gives us the answer to the effect of this king's reign on those whom he is saving. You will, you will have security from all danger under this king. It says here, it's like a hiding place from the wind and a shelter from the storm. I will never forget when that tornado ripped through uh, our area from Brimfield to Sturbridge. And I've never seen such great power and the effect of such power as that storm brought with it. Incredible devastation, incredible power. Here it says that the kingdom of God, that this righteous kingdom will provide shelter in the storm. He and all who represent him will provide protection from the danger. So what is the great danger that we face from the storms that are all around us? What is the greatest danger that we might have around us? Well, the answer is the greatest danger is the just wrath of God on us. Jesus himself said, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus was saying, It is God's wrath that you should fear more than anything. And the only place to hide from this wrath, from this great threat, is Christ Jesus. And he is a sufficient hiding place. He is protection from the wrath of God. And this means that if you're in Christ, there's really no threats that are really threatening at all. There's nothing to fear in Christ. He himself is literally the shelter from the storm. What an incredible thought. You also have provision for all your needs. It reads, we read, it will be like streams of water in a dry place. Imagine being in a desert where there is no water and out from nowhere comes streams of water gushing out. So will this king sustain us like a stream in a desert? 
He does not merely lead us to what we need. It's not that he is merely leading us to the place that we need to go and to the provisions that we need. He himself is our provision. He himself is what we need. You know, the Bible describes Jesus as a shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? A shepherd leads us to pastures. Shepherd leads us to the good things, the provisions, what we really need to survive. In John 10, verse 11, Jesus is called the good shepherd. But notice that Jesus is also called the bread of life. Jesus is also the very sustenance that he leads us to. According to John 6, verse 51, Jesus, as a shepherd, leads us to himself. This might all sound wonderful, but you might recognize there's one gigantic problem here. There's something that's just not right. You see, people have been in rebellion to this king since the fall. Throughout all of history of humankind, we have been in rebellion against him. We don't want this king to rule over us. And that is the most amazing thought, isn't it? That we don't want this king. And that shows the wickedness of the human heart, doesn't it? The reality of the human heart is we don't want this king to rule over us. We don't want him. And so we see that this kingdom has an answer to this problem in verses 3 through 4. You see, we often think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We often think, I would see God. I would recognize him. I would hear his words. I would respond properly to him. My heart would beat for this king. I would love him. But in reality, we are rebels against this king. That's who we really are at heart. Israel's response to the commands of this king, of their king, through Isaiah, is a testimony of how each one of us would have responded. They had no interest in following this king. They had no interest in following his leadership. They wanted to go their own way. The response to the true king when he came is a living testimony to how we have res- would have responded to this king as well. When Jesus came, the people did not recognize him with their eyes. They did not hear him when he spoke. They did not love him with their hearts. When Jesus spoke and he pointed out the problem, what did they do? They hated him and they wanted to kill him. And in fact, that's exactly what they did, didn't they? They crucified their king and their savior. But the amazing thing here is that with this king and his kingdom, there is a reversal of the faculties of man. They will see with their eyes the king. They will see the truth of this king. They will hear the words of this king. And they will hear the words as being true and right. And they will speak with their tongues praises of this king. They will speak the truth of this king. And this will not only be partial as it is today from those who believe in him, but it will be in its fullness when the kingdom of God comes. And by the way, this is why you have ears. And this is why you have eyes. And this is why you have a tongue. And this is why you have a heart. We have been created and formed in order to see and respond and delight in and speak of this one true king and his kingdom. And at one time, at one point, we will be exactly the way we are supposed to be. 
In light of this, you can understand better the significance of Jesus' whole ministry. Why did he do what he did? Why did he act the way he did? Why did he work the way he did? And you see what you see in his life. You see him opening the eyes of the blind. You see him healing the, those who cannot hear. You see him raising the dead to life. Well, that's exactly what Jesus came to do, didn't he? That's exactly what his kingdom does. He miraculously raises the dead to life and gives sight to the blind and ears to those who cannot hear. Have your eyes been opened to the Lordship of Christ? That is the only way for us to find salvation is if we see Christ for who he truly is. This is a work of God through opening our eyes through the gospel. Jesus explained why some recognized him to Peter in Matthew 16, 17. He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When your eyes see him for who he is, you cry out, my Lord and my Savior. When your ears hear him, you follow him and obey him and see him as Lord. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. That's how you know you belong to his kingdom, as you hear his voice. If you see him, if you hear him, if you speak of him, if you, your heart beats for him, then praise God for his grace in your life. You owe him all the praise and all the glory for what he has done in your life. The result of having our faculties properly aligned will be the ability to distinguish between the fool and the scoundrel and the honorable and the noble. And we see that in verses 5 through 8. Who is the fool and the scoundrel here? But we can't really understand what he's saying unless we understand who the fool and the scoundrel is. The fool is one who does not acknowledge God as Lord. The fool who is someone who says in his heart there is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1. He does not live in reference to God. He lives his life without reference to the living God. The scoundrel works for his own advantage regardless of the cost to others. He lives to his own advantage regardless of what it means to those around him. Who then is the noble and the honorable? And the answer is the very opposite of who the fool and the scoundrel are. They are the exact opposite in that they live in reference to God. The noble person lives in reference to God. All of his life is lived in reference to the central reality of who God is. It governs and directs and, and guides everything he does. That is the noble person. And the honorable lives to serve others at whatever the cost to themselves. He lives and gives and serves and loves others at regardless of the cost to his own well-being. The description of the fool and scoundrel confirms that definition in verses 6 through 7. They are described, the fool is described as someone in rebellion against God, who does not care for others, who is completely selfish and uses others for their own needs. And this is the opposite of the honorable and the noble man. The problem is that in this world, 
We cannot accurately identify all the time the fool from the noble, can we? In fact, the world is blind to the difference. The world cannot truly recognize the difference between the fool and the noble person. The world applauses, gives their applause to the fool. The, wor the world gives their applause to the scoundrel. You see, they can so easily mask themselves by making themselves look successful. And isn't that the tricky part of this? Is that for a short time, the fool and the scoundrel can look very successful. They can look like they are doing the right thing, like they're actually wise and noble and honorable for a short time. And because of this momentary success, we can be so easily fooled. But those who know God are able to distinguish between the fool and the noble, between the scoundrel and the honorable. We have a reference from which to distinguish the one from the other. Believers can be tricked, but we actually have a reference point. We can see the difference. And one day the fog of sin will be removed, and there will be no fooling anyone from distinguishing the difference between the fool and the noble. The fool will no longer be able to hide themselves. The fool will no longer be able to disguise themselves. The fool will be recognized exactly as they are. And you know what? One of the ways that we can represent the kingdom of God is by making it clear the distinction between the noble and the foolish person. We need to call out the noble person from the fool. And that is how we represent the kingdom of God. You know, God has brought us God has created the church so that we would be a preserving factor in this world. And one of the ways we are that preserving factor between now and the fullness of the kingdom of God is by accurately distinguishing between the fool and the noble person. We don't applaud when the fool looks successful. We don't honor them when they are applauded by the world. We speak the truth. And that's how we represent the kingdom of God. You should find comfort also in the fact that God is going to establish his kingdom through bringing judgment on all that conflicts or opposes his rule. You see, in verses 9 through 14, God gives us a picture in his warning to Judah of how he is going to clear, clear away all that belongs to this corrupt world, all that belongs to the corrupt kingdom. He is going to clear it away through judgment. All corruption of God's kingdom will be removed. Everything will be stripped away. And why does God do this? God does this in order to dismantle the kingdom of this world so that he can build and establish his own perfect kingdom. They can't fully... Uh, exist together at the same time. Whether this is purifying of God's people to make them fit for his eternal kingdom that they will dwell in forever, or just the casting out of his presence of his enemies who will be forever experiencing the just wrath of God. Either way, God is, is committed, God is perfectly committed to dismantling and removing all that would in any way pollute his kingdom. God addresses his warning to a specific group of people that might at first kind of surprise us here in verse 9. 
And so if we are to understand this warning, we need to understand who this complacent woman is. Because he calls them complacent. What does it mean to be complacent? And sometimes we might think that to be complacent is to be at ease and to have comfort and peace. But that's not what it means. You see, in God's kingdom, we'll be at peace and have comfort and be at ease. The Bible says that over and over again. But to be complacent means to have peace and to be at comfort and be at ease when there's no basis for it. It's to be that way when there's no basis for being that way. There's no reason to, be, to have comfort, no reason to have ease, and no reason to have peace. That is what it means to be complacent. It's to be under God's judgment and to live as if you are not under God's judgment. This is similar to the days of Noah in Matthew 24, verse 38 through 39. They ate and drank and were merry, and then judgment came upon them. Why are the women called out and picked on? I mean, is, uh, is Isaiah being sexist here or judgmental? Well, not at all. You see, this is likely happening during the festival time of harvest. When they would get their first fruits would come in. And so, there was, so this would be a great time of celebration. All the thoughts of anything that would be at all um, not joyous would disappear. You know, you would all of a sudden become festive and rejoicing because you had all your provisions, you had everything you ever needed. And so you would feel as secure and happy and at peace and at rest and have great comfort as ever before. And so what we see here is that the women are serving as an illustration of a far more expansive problem. They are exhibit A of spiritual complacency. They illustrate what it looks like to refuse to take God's warnings seriously. They are not worried about the judgment that's coming. They are not spiritually concerned. They have no urgency about them. They have no concern about the wrath of God. And then God exposes the folly of this false security by warning that judgment is coming soon. Things are not well with Judah. In verses 10 through 14. See, God's judgment is going to remove every false idea of comfort, every false um, basis for comfort he is going to remove from them. And he says here it's coming in about a year. All that they celebrate, all the harvest will end. You know, we just go out to the grocery store, don't we? And we get everything we need. We have no idea what it means to not have much. Imagine not being able to feed your children and this only a year after having this abundant, fruitful harvest. And what it says here is their land will be overgrown with thorns and briars. The land will be emptied and forsaken. The land will be not suitable to, for anything but to have wild animals grazing in it. And perhaps this has to do with the captivity that they'll eventually be brought into. But the city will be a joyless city. No longer will be there joys and festivities. But rather, the curse of Genesis 3 will remain on the land. And this could be a combination of both the Assyrian invasion of 13b and the greater Babylonian captivity in verse 14 that will happen later. And maybe even perhaps a greater judgment that will come from God. 
The point is that God says he'll strip everything that they find comfort in, everything that they find ease in through judgment to show the folly of their security that they are trusting in. Imagine if God were to do this to us. Imagine if God were to strip everything away from us that we find our security in. Everything that we're relying on outside of Christ were taken away from us. The problem is that when we feel a sense of security, when we have everything we need, we tend to not take warnings seriously, don't we? Those are the times where warnings are laughable. That's why when someone says something about God and his warnings in our day and age, most people will respond by laughing at you or by ignoring it or even getting angry at you because we feel like there's no reason to feel anything but comfort. There's no reason to hear a warning when we feel like everything is okay. And really, there's nothing more disturbing than when the church doesn't take the warnings of God seriously. There's nothing more disturbing when we are complacent to the reality of God's coming judgment. That is the most dangerous place to be in. Kind of like the college students who were partying in Florida just recently. When we were told that the coronavirus was coming around and we needed to um, practice social distancing, right? That was a warning. And what do you hear that in Florida everyone is partying on the beach? They are being complacent and failing to take the warnings of God seriously. But such warnings are really the most loving thing anyone can give. The most loving thing is to tell the truth of God and his coming judgment. The most unloving thing is to tell people who feel okay, you are not okay if they are not. The question for you is whether you're finding rest and security somewhere outside of God. Are you finding your security in God today? Are you finding your peace in God and your rest in God? If you're finding it anywhere else, you are living based on a false security and one day it will be stripped away from you. And you'll find that you are living with a false security and a false peace. If that is you, you need to be troubled. You need to mourn. You need to repent. You need to turn to Christ. God is the only place of legitimate rest and security. He is the solid ground. All other ground is sinking sand. The only path for standing on the secure rock is repentance and faith. You see, the kingdom of God will never be entered by those who continue on with life as usual. The kingdom of God will never be entered by those who continually feel secure and at peace and at rest in this world. But repentance and faith is strangely enough the path to true joy and peace and rest. You should find comfort, you should be comforted in that God is going to establish his kingdom through the pouring out of his spirit. And we see that in verses 15 through 20. We left off in verse 14 with Judah in a terrible place, didn't we? They were in an awful place. The, the land was barren. The land was deserted. They had nothing, no provisions. Apart from a miracle, everything was hopeless. But then notice in verse 15, the, this great hope explodes on the scene. Where there is hopelessness, God, as only God can do, explodes our world with hope in his words. Listen to verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, God takes the initiative by speaking into the world his great good news of hope. 
This great transformation comes through the pouring out of the Spirit of God, and it is explained through the rest of this chapter. The pouring out of the Spirit of God will remove everything and renew this world. The curse will be removed, and this world will be completely transformed. We see the uselessness of this ground, this useless, barren ground, will all of a sudden become a fertile field, won't it? And where it was cursed, it will all of a sudden produce a bumper crop. And this is language of a new earth. And this is what the Spirit of God does. It brings life when there is no life. And the renewed world includes the establishing of God's perfect government, where he will rule over all the people. And we see this in verse 16. God will rule in righteousness. Everyone there will not only be ruled in righteousness, but they will submit to his rule willingly and gladly and with great joy. There'll be no complaining. Imagine that. This can only come through the Holy Spirit's transforming power. You know, this is what we pray for when we say, Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying for God's kingdom to come in power. The effect of this renewed world through the reign of Christ will bring peace and rest forever. We see this in verses 17 through 18. God will bring true peace and true security and true rest. This is the effect of God's kingdom. Does this sound good to you at all? Does this sound like something that you would want? This righteousness brings security and confidence forever. And this contrast to the lack of peace and lack of security and lack of comfort from this world. You see, we should respond by longing for this day. If you are understanding this kingdom and the kingdom of God, if you see it and hear it and understand it, you should respond by longing for it. That is the right response, and especially in the day we live in and the struggles that we are facing all around us with this virus and, and the difficulties that it brings with it. We should be longing even more for this kingdom of God to come because it is a good kingdom and it is the restoration of all that is good. And all who have raised themselves against God and his good purposes will be brought to their knees in judgment by God. In verse 19, the falling of the forest refers to the humbling of Assyria, and the city laid low refers to the humbling of Jerusalem. And ultimately, these are just pictures of the ultimate humbling of all that opposes God and the judgment that awaits. Those who belong to God's kingdom will remain to delight in God's abundant kingdom and his provisions in verse 20. The truly happy people are those who belong to God's kingdom. Only those who are connected to Christ are the truly happy people. For in them is the abundance of all of God's goodness poured out to them through the source of Jesus Christ. All of our goodness is in Christ. He is the stream from which all of his goodness flows. Everything good from God comes from Jesus Christ. Happy are those who find this to be true. You know, God has already poured out his spirit upon us, hasn't he? In Acts 2, at Pentecost, we see the, the spirit of God being poured out. We are seeing the kingdom of God enter into our space and our time. And because of this, because of the spirit of God upon us, we can live as kingdom people today, even in the midst of great adversity. We can love people, we can serve people, we can give to other people. And the church, this is what we are all about, aren't we? 
is displaying the kingdom of God with our lives. And this comes through the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. Now, obviously, we are not perfectly reflecting the kingdom of God, but in part we do. And we seek to daily reflect and display God's kingdom to the world around us. In that sense, the church is the preserving factor in this world. And what we taste and see at Pentecost in our lives, just this little taste that we were able to see will one day be experienced in its fullness in God's kingdom. And we long and await that day that is coming. So if you belong to this king, then you should have peace and comfort and rest knowing that you belong to a truly great kingdom. Jesus is the shelter for the storm. He is the refuge in the storm. He protects us and keeps us from the wrath of God. And through him come all the blessings of God. Even in the midst of such difficult times when there are viruses, when there are signs of upheaval all around the world, you should know that you are in good hands if you're in God's hands. To some degree, you should experience the peace and safety in the midst of the turmoil of this world. And it is right and it is God-honoring for you to say that God's kingdom is great by feeling the reality of the security and the peace and the joy. So in a sense, as you experience this comfort, as you experience this peace and security, you are saying that God's kingdom is true and God's kingdom is great. And you are honoring God by delighting in him as your king and by saying that his kingdom is great. If you belong to this kingdom, you should be the most giving people in the world because you already have everything you need. What can you lose if you belong to the kingdom of God? If you lose everything in this world, you still have everything. You should be willing to give up and give and serve at, at great cost to yourself, the world, because you already have the kingdom of God. And what more can you have than God's kingdom? And so as we understand the kingdom of God, we will hoard less. We will cherish the world less. We will give to others with great overflowing goodness. If you belong to this great kingdom, then you should long for the return of your king. He will come, and he is coming to reign. At times like this, in the darkness of this world, we should see more clearly the light of the goodness of God's kingdom. We should say with our hearts and our minds and our voices, Come, Lord Jesus, we are longing for your return. The question for you is this, do you really belong to this kingdom? If you're outside and do not belong to God's kingdom, then James tells you the right way you should respond. In chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, here is what you should do if you're outside of God's kingdom. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That is the right response. Not complacency, but mourning and repenting and turning to Christ. In Acts 16.30, the question is asked, what must I do to be saved? And that's the same question as asking, what must I do to belong to God's kingdom? That's the same question. What it means to be saved and to belong to God's kingdom are the same thing. And the answer is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Notice it is not just the name Jesus that is mentioned there, 
but it's the Lord Jesus. If you, you cannot be saved if you are believing in anyone but the Lord Jesus. It is only the Lord Jesus who can save. And do not rest until you are safe in him. Those of us who are trusting in this king, according to Colossians 1 verse 13, have already been delivered into his kingdom. We read in Colossians 1 verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There is a sense where we have already been delivered into his kingdom. We are as good as being there already. And in one sense, one day, we will fully enjoy what it means to be in God's kingdom. And we long for that day to come. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are king. We thank you that you reign supreme over all others. We thank you for your kingdom that you have established and are establishing. We thank you that nothing can stand against your purposes. So almighty God, in the midst of a world that is falling apart all around us, because of our sin, as judgment from your hand, we pray that, these, that this world would be a constant reminder of your goodness in your kingdom. I pray that the falling apart of the world around us would constantly remind us that there is a king who reigns and whose kingdom is coming and whose plans cannot be thwarted. And I pray that this would bring us great joy, even in the falling apart of the world around us, that our king is coming and he is bringing with him the fullness of his kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would bring us great peace, great security. Help us to truly rest in you, Jesus. Give us great joy. And may that be our witness to the world around us, that there is a kingdom that is true, a kingdom that will never fade away, a kingdom that can truly save us, and that is your kingdom. And so, Lord, give us a glimpse of your glory. Open our eyes to see you. Help us to remain steadfast with our eyes on the King, on you, Jesus. And Lord, may you help us this week to live in the reality of what it means to be people who belong to your kingdom and who have you as our king. And I pray that if there's anyone who hears these words and realizes that they are outside of your kingdom, I pray that you would save them today. I pray that they would realize the terrible place that they are in, that they would stop rejoicing on unfounded basis and rejoice and turn to the king who can truly save them. And I pray that you would bring salvation today. Lord, we thank you for all that you are and for your great kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.